from Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray. And I'm Claire Schweitzer. Hello. Welcome. How are you? We're doing all right, right? Yep. Pretty decent. Doing great. Um, by the time you listen to this, uh, the fires will be a thing of the past, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm willing it. <laughs> I, I am hoping for that, too. Prayers for California. We will, we will see through all this. I, it's so amazing how uh, California just goes through all the fires every year. But yeah. we're here. We're healthy. Yes. And we're making a show. Yes, we are. Well, today's episode is going to be interesting because we're talking about YouTube dance class videos, the class video, the red wall, (laughs) diversity is unity. Unity, yes. (laughs) Or the black wall with the green logo or the light up letters in the back of the studio. All of that. Or the one brick wall or the other brick wall. All the walls of YouTube that we are also familiar with. Very familiar with. So it's going to be an interesting episode. Stick around for that. Look in the show notes to click the links and look through what we're going to be talking about today. But first, I want to know, what is everyone watching this week? I've been revving up for Back to Dance, and I've been watching a lot of different syllabus videos. And I think my next purchase is going to be a bright unitard. (laughs) Perhaps a long sleeve, definitely a low back situation, perhaps a metallic purple or something like this. And I will thoroughly enjoy wearing that as I do my undulations and contractions at the bar. That's the life I'm living right now on YouTube. I am into (laughs) that. I think we should have Frameform branded unitards. Long sleeve, low back. Yes. Yes. I love it. I am so retired from the leotard. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I do miss taking class, but man, it feels just kind of nice not being in a leotard every day like I was in college. I will say I feel like such a hypocrite when I teach a class and I was that kid that was keeping score because I was petty like that. If I teach a class and I'm wearing a ponytail and the students are required to wear a bun, like I'll start resenting myself. So that's, I I agree that we can move beyond the leotards, but sometimes I feel like teachers should just suck it up and wear a bun. And that's going to be one of my goals this year is getting back into bun wearing all day, every day. I don't think I've worn a bun in maybe 12 years. I mean, when you're, (laughs) wow. When you're in San Francisco, like, you know, Pajamas flies like ballet class wear. Yeah. Like anything flies is ballet class wear. Wow. I haven't had a whole lot of time to watch things and I feel kind of bad for um for doing that, but I have had a lot of chances to watch things for work, which I think is kind of now a top watch list item, like, you know, editing <laughs> editing shows or editing editing trailers and stuff. But um at least I can say like I'm editing trailers and like in actually enjoying jamming out to some of the music in these trailers. And one of the trailers I'm editing is from one of my favorite class musicians ever. So it's one of those things where I'm like jamming in my seat while I'm making all these cuts. So nice. Claire, you can't just say that and not say who. <laughs> oh, Albert Matthias. Nice. Check okay. it out, well, folks. 
Yes, Toyetomy. It's a Claire wreck. Yes, yes. And that, I literally, like, if anyone goes to San Francisco and I tell, like, if they only have time to take one class, like, you know, remember when we took class, guys? Um, <laughs> Long ago. Ouch. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. I always say um, you take Kathleen Hermsdorf's class because, uh, first of all, her movement is incredible. And um, she's unfortunately currently recovering from um, a health issue at the moment. But um, Albert, her essentially her creative partner, is the musical accompaniment. And it's just like another, again, very quintessential San Francisco experience. Nice. Well, I recently saw Jojo Rabbit, if anyone has seen that one yet. I have not yet. What did you think? I honestly loved it. I thought it was funny. I mean, they advertise it as like the satire, like the anti-hate satire. Uh, But it's also funny because it's, you know, it starts with like how much this kid loves Hitler. and But in the end, he kind of, I wouldn't say kind of, he dislikes him and throws him out. Spoiler. But <laughs> in case you don't know how that ends, <laughs> I thought it was so good. I mean, I really like that director. I mean, it has a little bit of a Wes Anderson take to it regarding like the music choice and some of the slow motion moments. But I know that director from his other works and I, it's definitely a very uh, more professional take of any of his films before. But yeah, he's also done other work, so... I um I mean I've heard I haven't seen the film myself but I've heard very very like pull to pull reactions from it like really? some people I know absolutely love it and then I know a few people who either walked out of the theater within ten minutes or what? turned it off after ten minutes yeah that means it's a good film if it's controversial like that and people walk out it's definitely worth watching but they yeah. should know from that director who is also starring in it. Who's the director, yes. by the way? Because I totally Taika thought Waititi. it was Wes Anderson. Okay. Ta- like visually, visually, I thought it was Wes Anderson. I didn't even think about it being another director. No, this director has done um, a lot of, again, satire work, as well as some other stuff that you would be like, oh, he did that. Um, yeah, what we do in the shadows is fantastic. If so good. I saw that in the theater, and that's a mockumentary on vampires living in in New Zealand which I think is Amazing. hilarious but um that's so weird that they walked out because nobody is into Hitler they wouldn't they would not pass that into theaters you know right. if it was like a making a joke on that guy you know like mm-hmm. that's so did you talk I'm not going to go well, into that. But like. I mean, some of the people or some of the negative reactions I've seen to the film do come. I mean, I again, I don't want to paint a broad brushstroke, but do come from a lot of people of the Jewish faith or people I know who are, you know, practice Judaism who felt that that was, you know, the film was coming from a place not of, you know, the experience of the those who were oppressed in the war, but someone from the place of someone who was removed during it and thought that, you know, the whole, the whole notion of anybody liking this guy was funny. So, I mean, I totally get it from that perspective. Um, I mean, I, again, I have not seen the film myself, so I can't really speak, um, really either way on it. Um, but, but yeah, but it's something where maybe I don't agree, but I do, do want to hear him out. 
Interesting. I would love to have a conversation with them just to get the get a full point of view. Speaking also as a Jew myself. Oh, okay. But it, I mean, I don't know. I can take a joke. But that's the important thing is I think being able to engage in conversation and especially in a world where there's so much content, it's it's increasingly shorter and shorter, more into sound bites than into long developed thought. Like we run into the issue of people react or make their mind up before and I'm not saying this is everyone that's had that has a negative uh feeling about this film, but just um let's say if someone were to decide in the first five minutes said, I'm, I'm not going to watch the rest of this. This is garbage. I'm leaving. Um, it is a challenge of how do we, how do we talk about things or how do we even develop ideas if we can't work our way through them? Um, yeah. Yeah. But that said, that. I understand how someone might be just certain things are off the table, never going to be funny for them. And, and I think there's room for that too. But now I really want to see this film. <laughs> it's now just it's now it's bumped great. way up my list because of the controversial nature for sure we are talking about something else controversial today <laughs> yes yes the class video yes today's episode is called internet made the video star so in the 1980s video quote video killed the radio star in the 2000s the internet is creating video stars and radically altering how we train teach and watch dance Today, we're specifically talking about YouTube class videos, not really tutorial videos or instructional dance videos, but more so these uh, videos of classes that are packaged as an end-of-class combo, but we're going to peel back the layers a bit and see how these are actually produced and what the impact they have is. So these videos have been really definitive of dance culture in the 2000s. So social dances used to be shared and developed in person, but now social dance and social media are are inextricably linked. The impact these class videos have had on the dance industry and culture is as massive as the impact of other technological waves, such as the movie industry or network television. So today we're going to start by talking about characteristics of these specific class videos. We'll cover some of the people that are typically behind and in front of the camera and how the production and sharing of these videos has forever altered our expectations of class training and video production in general. So, Hannah, Claire, what are your thoughts on these class videos? How would you describe them? Somewhat addicting. (laughs) As someone who said earlier that uh, I've retired the leotard, um, I wasn't ever someone who really enjoyed watching any kind of dance besides screen dance, like as in these class videos on YouTube until I left the dance. I guess I'm not saying I left the dance field, but like, I guess the performing side of dance. And now as I fell upon these a few years ago, I love and hate them because they're kind of addicting because they're so fun. and. They just, they're they're popular songs. They're basically dancing like background dancers. And I love background backup dancers. They're great. And it's exciting. That's where I am right now. But I I understand where, you know, things cross the line and why it's a little, as we said, controversial. For me, actually... The first time I really became aware of sort of like dance or studio videos was 
I went through a K-pop phase <laughs> a, few, a few years back. Um, Hi, and Claire. I mean, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, um, which again, that's another, you know, incredible rabbit hole to fall into for a few days or months at a time. But something I noticed as I was watching these videos, which first the actual music videos themselves, which are super highly produced, millions of dollars go into them, um, have something like 500 million to a billion views per video. But then I also noticed that there are these very nondescript, like very simple, like fixed camera studio environment. The performers are in just their warm up clothes, just doing the choreography. And I was also noticing that those videos were getting something like 100 million to 200 million views. So I was intrigued by that. And then I actually saw some of the more hyper-produced class videos. And I mean, yeah, they're, they're definitely addicting. And like upon first glance, like there's something that very much catches your eye with them. I don't really, I mean, I'm not really too far into the commercial dance world. And I don't want to be one of those people that says like, oh, you know, brush commercial dance aside. And maybe if I had more experience, I'd be able to speak more in a more nuanced way about it. But after watching a lot of them, it feels like just like a a bunch of peaks without much of a valley. Like it felt like a lot of the movement, which is like, well, first of all, lots of movement, like no count is wasted. Everything just kind of running the same after a while. Yeah. So let's talk about for people that maybe I'm sure there's some people listening that know exactly what we're talking about. They know who their favorite channels are. They know which choreographers and dancers they like the best. Let's sort of just describe what these videos look like. What are the tropes or what's part of this genre of class video? Like we talked about, quote unquote, the red wall, which is very iconic of Millennium Dance Complex. Um, which is a franchise that exists around the world, but particularly we see videos coming out of their Los Angeles location. That is until it closed uh, temporarily due to COVID. But what are different signatures of this style? Because the choreography, it's not a fly on the wall type of situation. It's very much designed for this particular viewer. So what have you two noticed in how the choreography is being chosen and directed for camera and what sort of what sort of video technical aspects make these different from if you were to just point and shoot? Well, before we get into the video, I have to say uh, one trope that we constantly see because we're watching this on the internet is just the chosen still for the video (laughs) with The the, the thumbnail with the title of the song for the dance that they're going to go to. And that's what I usually go for first. I want to hear the song that that they're dancing to. But when we go into the video, I mean, we always see, you know, the environment or we go right into the song and the dancer. And the first thing I'm noticing is the freaking steady cam, which is so... (laughs) I never noticed it so much before until... uh, just watching some of the other channels the other day where one of them I was like this is this is a lot so <laughs> yeah. steady cam that's very yeah. noticeable that's up in their up in the dancers faces and bodies um I mean we're we have dancers that look like influencers on Instagram uh, most of the time these dancers are dancing in a trio or solo in a duet um usually the f- person who is the front of the triangle 
is, you know, the one to look at. Most of the time when I'm watching, I try to watch the people in the back than yes. the person in the front. Um, those are just a few things, Claire. I bet you have more. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the things I have were things that you said, um, particularly with regards to the steady cam. And you can actually tell whether the camera was choreographed to the dance or whether it was not, because a lot of them, like you'll have some cameras that will actually be very respectful to the choreography and react to the choreography. But a lot of times you'll see steady cams that just kind of go in and out, in and out, like arbitrarily and like don't really like, just succeed in making you feel overwhelmed. But something else I wanted to add was, you know, the placement of the crowd in the back of the studio space. Um, I mean, at least whenever I we break apart into groups and I, in a dance class and you break apart into groups, you're usually at the front along the mirror watching the dancers. But there's a very um, thought out staging in that um, it's almost like you're part of this 360 sphere, um, even though the dance is primarily being... Um, performed to you. And, and again, like that, all the dances are performed very directly eyes into the camera as well. It's very weird that it is into the camera. I mean, it's supposed to kind of emulate the mirror in a way, but dancing to you makes it more personal, but also a little bit, I mean, they're a little extra. It's like they're dancing for themselves at that point. Exactly. I think it's a metaphor for how these videos are represented in the culture. I mean, something we talk about with Youth Protection Advocates and Dance is the cumulative effect of what are the costume choices? What are the, what's the music? What's the choreography and the movement? What's the facial expression? What's the relationship to the audience? All these different layers are sort of um, levels that you can adjust to create an end tone, an end result, an end story or character. And what I find with a lot of these videos is they really turn up the intensity. It's not even like they are uh, sexually suggestive. They are illustrative. A lot of these very extreme hypersexualized videos get put out there. And then that's in further intensified with this eye contact with the camera. It's very much designed for a particular viewer it's very much we're not really watching a class we are watching a construction of a class and in turn in order to create these sorts of end results the way that class is being taken or sold is different when these videos started really taking off which i i mean youtube i think was established in 2005 these videos probably were had their biggest boom between i would guess like 2013 to 20 yeah yeah around the 20 to early 2010s yeah and, and i mean now it's shifted to platforms like instagram and tiktok but the youtube boom was really that i think we're kind of focusing on is really around those mid 2000s like you know getting into the the 20 teens and it really is a demonstration of how people changed the way they were selling classes and marketing their classes as in, oh, you'll get to be in my class video. All of a sudden, class became about the combo and the post and not about the practice of taking class and making mistakes. Yeah, and there's a lot of ethical quandaries when it comes to that. And particularly when it comes to the fact that the students are indeed paying for that class, 
and essentially paying to be in someone else's content, which that person is basically selling as their own. And also it, like you said, it like it totally takes the focus away from what class usually is about. It's usually, you know, you go and you're not supposed to be very good. You're not supposed to necessarily show your best. You're working on trying to be your best in a class environment and having the camera there can totally affect that. And with that paying the class, I mean, those people who go to those classes all the time, those are the people who are also showing up all the time in those class videos. You know, it's like, what about those new people? I mean, it's going to take them what? I don't know, maybe like a month or a month and a half to finally nail that person's style routine. I mean, it's really weird of like, I'm going to go take this person's class and hope to be, you know, featured on the YouTube account and, you know, see themselves. But it's like, uh, it's weird. Well, it's interesting that this becomes part of the dance economy and industry because we see that choreographers that become successful through a viral video or a quote-unquote class video then get hired for a convention or to perform or, um, you know, become those big household names. A lot of dance, and there are positives to this. A lot of people take an interest in dance or start wanting to take dance because they see these videos that make class look so fun and so hype, or they see a particular style of movement that they're really into. And as you mentioned, Hannah, a lot of these songs, uh, a lot of these videos are have the song title in it. So there's an aspect of, someone who's just searching for the latest pop song might then come across these videos thanks to SEO. But it's interesting how these videos then become uh, this big cultural commodity that has real repercussions in the industry and also in the way that we're learning dance. So what do you realize, like, have you found that these class videos, like, I would even liken this to when So You Think You Can Dance came on TV and completely changed the dance industry and also how people are just the average child in a dance studio perceives dance or how their parents or their uncles or aunts, just regular folks see dance uh, represented. How do you think that this has impacted the culture or what sort of influence do you see these class videos having? Young dancers saying... I'm saying like teens, maybe this will definitely ignite some kind of inspiration to maybe go into a dance studio or learn a routine from home. But I don't think it's setting them up for, I don't know, I guess the long run of appreciation in dance. You know, it's just like, this is what I was saying earlier with This is like watching background dancers with pop stars, you know? It's just one style of dance. I mean, it's great. I love it. I am so totally fueled by it sometimes. But in the long run, it's like, what about all the other kinds of dance? And that's the thing with pop culture. I mean, you're only getting fed what is shown to you in, you know, the top top 40, Yeah, it's called lowest common denominator. Yeah, and I think furthermore, they're emphasizing really a product over process approach or kind of another way to think about it, a dance as a series of moves. So 
instead of, you know, mastering like a sort of technique, which um, I'm not necessarily talking like a codified technique. Uh, I know hip hop has a very, you, you absolutely need to work at it in order to, to master it. But a lot of people just see sort of like these very eye popping moves and think that, okay, if I just operate by mastering this series of, you know, really cool movement, then that makes me a dancer. If I can, you know, sort of like we were talking about a few episodes ago, if I can do a backflip, I'm a dancer. If I can, you know, just turn a lot, I'm a dancer. And I think it just further reinforces that idea. But that being said, one positive I do see from class videos and specifically a positive I see from having cameras in the class is that dancers do get comfortable performing on camera, which in this day and age is a crucial, crucial skill to have. And um, I did a residency a few years back where the kids in that town have based, like it's basically a, um, a, a residency where a bunch of artists come to a town and create films in two weeks and utilize people from that town. And the kids in that town are so, so comfortable dancing in front of cameras because they've basically grown up dancing in front of cameras. And especially at a time like this, when we're probably not going to see live performances for a long time, that's a very good skill to have. I totally agree. I think it is definitely a skill to a point. I mean, as I watch these videos and as we said, like, I feel like these dancers are more at a point of dancing for themselves than for viewers. The way that they're presenting themselves and that goes into the whole hand in hand of social media culture where people, you know, want the clicks, see that they can get picked up in, by talent. I mean, get paid. I mean, it. back when we were talking about the Uprooted film, you know, it's that get a job dance because that's what sells. And what I have to wonder is what part of it is selling. I think a lot of this... Um, and this continues to be an issue for dance in general, I think, is the just the appeal of, oh, there's there's scantily clad people who are, quote unquote, in shape and that I perceive to be attractive dancing this way. And particularly in these videos, like the type of movement we see and the type of eye contact, like I do find that it's I find it really like creepy and, and pretty sexual a lot of the time. And where I get worried is we see videos like that getting very popular and getting linked with success and likes and all this positive feedback and, oh, these people are going to get a job or these people are going to become YouTube famous or they get to work with the bigger choreographers. And I have to wonder like how damaging that might be in the long run where someone might look back and say, wow, I was 16 dancing in that video. And that was probably like a really adult environment and at the time it feels cool because I feel like a grown-up but looking back I wonder if anyone's feeling exploited or some resentment because of it um, because things were perhaps beyond their years and what I just hope is that we see examples in dance of maturity without sexuality and like how to how to develop as a dancer and mature as a dancer without it being solely based on oh well she's 18 now like that sort of creepiness. Exactly. And what weirds me out is seeing a lot of these class videos that I mean, feature like all age, like an all age crowd and all age participants dancing what is definitely not all age choreography. And yeah, like you're saying, it really a sense of like a hypersexualization of very, very young people, which again is very, very damaging. 
looking at it in the long run, I mean, yeah, we see like dancing at 16. That's kind of creepy. But also like just think of the daily. I mean, we live in a day and age where we're craving likes or looking for likes. And that is also damaging as well, where you're just like, I didn't get this many likes from this video, you know, and I didn't get that many streams. And that is definitely damaging, which is a very strange, but, you know, modern way of depression these days. Oh, it is absolutely true. Social media use is linked to increased depression, aggression, and anxiety. And the addiction is the effects of it are similar to cocaine on the brain. Like that we're certainly, and we don't know the long-term effects because social media hasn't been around long enough. And this is even before we're talking about the pandemic era where, where people are regularly working remotely even more than they were or on school um, or taking school online. So I, I bet the effects are going to be even more extreme uh, due to the pandemic, but it is really scary. I do want to shout out a film called Letter by Zeljko Bozik, which is a very great critique on YouTube culture. And it's from Slovenia. So the fact that it's not even like a film from North America about North American dance culture, it's very much referring to a global uh, cultural pandemic. So I really recommend that that film and we will link that in the show notes because it's it's an excellent critique on this without being too heavy handed and being very inspiring and positive. And with that said, with all these dancers and dance videos that we're talking about, why don't we talk about the choreographers and the movement? I mean, we're talking about, I mean, we're going into, you know, sexualization and I would, I would, want to make this a word extraness uh, <laughs> a personality and performing so one person that I personally love is Kyle Hanagami who I think his movement is so fine and I think it's also well appropriate for the age demographic it's not over the top with sexualization it's very fun one of my favorite videos of the class videos that he's done is when Charlie XCX came in and they danced to 1999 and there was a little uh little nod to bring it on and I I just thought that was so appropriate for that music video um or for that song by Charlie XCX so I want to shout out Urban Dance Cap and particularly um some of my favorite dancers are Keone and Mari Madrid they also have excellent films on their own and just a really fun, creative means that they express things. But um, yeah, definitely I want to shout them out and Urban Dance Camp as a channel as well because those videos are just really stellar examples. There's one that's um, a cover of uh, It's Too Elastic Heart by Sia. I actually don't remember who the dancers are, but that is probably one of my favorite class videos of all time. Claire, do you have any? Well, actually, one of my favorite um, class, I guess, class video choreographers um, or class video dance <laughs> choreographers, I suppose, um, is Galen Hooks. And something I really like about hers, her videos is, first of all, the camera is very thoughtfully choreographed. 
Like you don't see a whole bunch of like in and out, like, whoa, what are they doing kinds of cameras? Like they're very, you know, very thoughtful zoom ins to mid shot to capture details and very thoughtful zoom outs to capture the whole body movement. And something else that I really appreciate about her videos and something that really sets her videos apart from others, how often she uses stillness and nuance, which is in kind of a strange, ironic way is refreshing and almost attention grabbing considering everything else is very much a peak, 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 like over like sensory overload. Like she really isn't afraid to take time with her movement. Galen is certainly a living legend and a master, absolutely, of of her craft. And something I appreciate about her videos as well is she doesn't create all the same type of content. Like, she'll dabble in the mainstream class videos. She'll do, like, a Rihanna song or she'll do whatever's popular. But she also has more of her own projects that are really so much more deep and, and very, um, I think useful uh, by way of education. She does certain uh, a series where she plays, it's a split screen, and she'll play the same choreography with a different character or a different energy. And you can just see side by side how the movement is different when you dance it differently. So I think that Galen's a perfect example of someone who does do the mainstream thing, but also has taken the class video format and thought carefully about how can I actually provide education through video? and make make a point and create something new and useful versus just jumping on a trend and trying to keep up with it. So shout out to Galen, living legend. I really enjoyed her work. I've never heard of her until we started collecting information for this episode. And what I really appreciated about her was just how low-key she was. Very subtle in her choice of movement where all these other choreographers are like you said Claire very peak oriented and over the top where hers were more you know I'm just moving through it I'm rolling into it and uh, I watched her D'Angelo video for Send It On the way she just floats I would say in that was I, I mean, I could watch it again um, and fall in love with it because it was just so contrasted from uh, the other videos. And I think a lot of these videos that we're singling out here are examples where the video enhances or highlights the choreography, but it doesn't manipulate or change it too much, which I know has been a critique of certain I guess you would call them more dance purists. Um, like there was actually an article called Ian Eastwood versus, and I'm not saying he's a dance purist, but in this context, perhaps. Um, so Dance Spirit did an article called Ian Eastwood versus class videos. And I mean, this is where journalism is nowadays. We we put tweets <laughs> into it, into an article and that's a story, but I'm not even saying that sarcastically. Like that just is what journalism is. So quoting uh one of ian's tweets it says are he's like y'all are chopping up dance with slow motion class clips now like interbang question mark exclamation mark um he says this is where i officially tap out with the class clip epidemic y'all have really gone too far using a higher frame rate to rev up or slow down video within a class clip just to make it look cooler 
So this is something that I think comes up as there are technological advances and people start experimenting with certain forms that alter what the original thing is. And there's some people that are going to indulge in that creatively and love doing it and pushing those boundaries. And then there's those that are like, wait, you're completely changing what the original thing even is. This isn't even dance anymore. Uh, What have you two noticed about that? Or do you have any strong feelings on how class videos like the editing is affecting the dance? Well, I just want to make a comment because we're looking at class videos here as a sort of a hybrid creation that, you know, the the camera and the dance is really creating something new. What does that sound like? It sounds like screen dance. And I actually did read a dissertation arguing for class videos as screen dance. And with that, it implies that there is a complete hybridity between both the form of dance and the form of film. With that being said, there's sort of like a deceptive packaging in that we're calling this a class video in that, you know, we are calling this a product of what presumably happened, you know, an hour and a half prior to the filming of this video. I mean, I think that there can be some really interesting, really interesting touches to some of these videos. But fundamentally, if you're trying to show the choreography, then and you're really trying to present the choreography as if it's some uh, combination that is taught in the, yeah, at the end of the class, then in that case, effects and the like are not really appropriate for that. That's a really interesting argument, Claire. Uh, I never really thought of the class video as, you know, screen dance. To me, I feel like I'm in this middle ground where, you know, what we've talked about is documentation considered screen dance as well. And I also argue on that, it depends if it's, uh, in this case, the class video has a steady cam. Sometimes it's very too much and it makes you sick to the eye, I would say, because it's moving so much. But would I call that screen dance? Yes. Would I call it a class video? That's where it gets a little blurry. I mean, it is being cut up. It is being performed. But then it gets like, you know, I want to feel the class atmosphere. I want to feel like the students around. Well, Tim Milgram as a cinematographer, I mean, definitely setting up the production value of these class videos with inserting light fixtures and smoke, fog. (laughs) I mean, you don't even see the other dancers and it's all of a sudden like a little performance. You know, it looks like almost a recital in the studio with all the production that is brought into it. And then you're like, is this even considered a class video at this point? Yeah, and I think that a lot of questions need to be raised regarding the context of this choreography, too, because fundamentally, a lot of this, this is essentially choreography created for a screen environment that's best suited in a screen environment. So what would happen if we took this choreography and put it like in a stage environment, in a performative environment? Would it necessarily read the same way? Would it necessarily read in a positive way? I think it would. This is where I argue. I mean, it's frontal. When I think of frontal, I think you could put it on the proscenium, put it on a freaking music video, put it anywhere, and it's going to survive fine because of the energy of it all, the music that it's paired with. I don't think it's really choreographed for the camera. What makes it choreographed is the steady cam itself. 
that's me being, you know, a little argumentative. <laughs> All good. I feel like something that changes choreography when we put it on video is it feels less personal in a way, even though you can get in more to those details or like a close up emotionally or conceptually. I feel like it's more it's automatically more objectifying because you're looking at an image or you're looking at pixels versus a flesh and bone person in front of you. So I wonder how some of this choreography might be like, it seems pretty extra on camera. I wonder how like sloppy or messy it might feel in person because it looks very sharp and clean cut when it's put into this produced video. But I wonder if it might feel more intense, but also less clean and sharp if we saw it in person. And I will say, like, I feel like I'm being kind of negative about the choreography just because I'm like such a mom already, <laughs> like with my with my standards on like what I want to see uh, by way of dance. But I do want to shout out that a lot of this choreography is so well executed. And that's where I get disappointed. It's like, oh, the potential is there to like such clean, amazing, precise dancing that's really dynamic and detailed. Yet, what are the songs we're choosing? Yet, what are the gestures that we're doing? What is that? Um, So I I definitely have mixed feelings about it. And I wonder if people saw this choreography in person that they might perceive it differently than they do when they're just flipping through it on on YouTube. And I'd have questions about whether that choreography could sustain, I mean, not only just like an evening length show, but even if it was like a 20-minute piece. I mean, we almost see these dancers as superheroes. Like they're like sort of like the ideal of like what the human body can do. And it doesn't leave a lot of room. I mean, some, you know, with some exceptions, it doesn't leave a lot of room for the spectrum of not just the human experience, but the body's experience, the body's experience of fatigue. And how do you move through that? Like we're all, we're not always at hundred percent all the time. There are times when I've definitely like, you know, I record a podcast and I listen back and I'm just like, huh, okay. <laughs> but uh, so I think that, uh, ideally, art should allow for, you know, variety of experience. So in your opinions, what are some of the best, what are the positives of these class videos and what are some of the negatives? Well, I think some of the positives are, well, first the length. Most of them are quite short. And because they're quite short, they're also quite dense. Like they're really, and this goes both ways, but there really isn't a wasted moment. Every base is filled in, like every note is accounted for in a way. And like you said, Jen, like the dancers who are performing it and I mean, the movement itself is very, requires a certain sense and understanding of your body and the dancers who are performing it have a very, you know, careful, you know, understanding of their body as well. Positives for me, I think are, I mean, just the whole, I'm saying positives for them. They get a reward out of it of just, dancing a routine with these very well-known choreographers. They get some kind of, you know, a few minutes of stardom. Most of these videos that we're watching here are being featured. It's chorus and a, a verse and a chorus, you know, of a song, which is, you know, we could say maybe that's less than a minute and a half. And it's all highs all highs, never a dull moment. I think the negatives is that exactly. It's only, you know, a minute in some of that and they might not be seen ever again. And it gets 
so buried into YouTube because there's so many being churned out. I mean, you go on these channels and there's not just like a few. There's a lot. It's a business at that point. You know, a lot of these videos are coming from certain studios and I would I would call it a millennial dance complex that it's actually developed where it is this hype culture. It is this constant living in a peak state. It is this inability to remove a life or a regular lived experience from the sphere of social media. You know, we can no longer say that whatever is on the internet, quote unquote, isn't real or is separate from our lived experiences. Um, when in general, trends and popular culture are absolutely one in the same when it comes to our experience with technology. And I think that there are definitely positives. You know, people are watching dance. People are excited about dance. Uh, people are feeling motivated to train more, to, um, you know, get to get that combo in their classes so that they can feel like they're progressing. But I definitely do see the negatives of it, especially when we don't see that there is an element of production and planning and that though these are positioned as class videos and this is the select group doing the combo that we just learned in this past hour or so, that it does lead to expectations that are unrealistic and it does have real repercussions on how your average dance teacher or dance studio operates. All of a sudden class isn't about you know, it's, it's, let's get one combo that we can get a video of and post versus let's really work through some concepts and learn. And maybe we end up dancing to a few different songs that we like, or maybe we use no music this class. Um, so I do, I just do just hope that we keep an open conversation about how these things can be helpful and harmful. Absolutely. And I mean, based on what I've read about Tim Milgram, and I know that he has a huge following on a huge channel. I mean, I did appreciate reading an article about him where he said in developing his studio, he really does want the class, the whole two hour class to be front and center so that there's an hour and a half of an actual full get your money's worth kind of class. And then maybe half hour devoted to filming, which can also be reframed as furthering, you know, keep exploring the movement material which I do appreciate. And I think that it also gives an opt-out option for people who maybe want to take the class and don't want to be on video too. And I think it's reflective of the fact that Tim grew up as a dancer as well. This is something that I'm sure will come up many times uh, as we discuss different, different themes in dance and film. But when you actually have someone behind the camera that knows what it's like to be in class or on stage or knows what the dancer's perspective is, it does alter how we experience those things. And I do see with Tim how that affects his editing, his camera movement. I, I think it's part of why he's seen such incredible success is that he does have an understanding of both dance and film and is able to really integrate those so well. Like you're not going to see the random steady cam movement with his. That's for sure. One comment with the random steady cam. I did not like the dance on channel. <laughs> that was what I meant by erratic yeah steady camera I, I was like this is this is just someone who's like just hopped up and ready to be a part in that person's probably doing the routine if anything because that <laughs> camera is just moving in and out of people like I, I, I just just no yeah 
my my money's on they gave it to a like they gave a gimbal to a dancer and said hey just shoot this movie kind of things you got this <laughs> yeah but also these class videos do raise and this is a theme across dance film in general uh, they do raise an interesting question about ownership and sort of like the names that we attach to these films do we attach the production house or like the the uh, the videographer's name, like Tim Milgram. Do we attach the choreographer's name? Do we highlight the dancers that are featured in it? And the emphasis that we place on these different roles affects the way that we see and receive the videos. With the exception of Tim Milgram, like I could barely find any kind of credits for videographers in the video. Again, I think a lot of them work sort of hand off, hand the camera off to some random person and they, they take the video. But I think it does a disservice to people, for instance, like Galen Hook's videographer, who really does, you know, thoughtfully move the camera and really emphasizes, you know, really heightens the experience of the choreography for the viewer. Yeah, I find that really strange. I think that hopefully these choreographers are working with a consistent steady cam operator to kind of have that partnership relationship regarding you know just working and documenting what their movement is I think I mean it's kind of just like the film world in general a lot of directors work with certain directors of photography a lot of the same editors you know I mean that's what a team is all about in the end is like who you work with Definitely. And I feel like part of the social media role in this uh, does elevate, I think, the dancers quite a bit in a way that we maybe didn't always see. You know, we've we've likened this style of movement or the feeling of this to being like, it's like watching the background dancers minus the that front artist. And I think that that's been a positive thing is that more young dancers have been able to get a name for themselves or try and take those classes and, and get that exposure. But I have my own gripes with the kind of the values being elevated through that. But I do think that it's, it has been a positive that more dancers are able to participate in a way that maybe they wouldn't before, you know, not everyone is going to be able to audition successfully and tour with Janet Jackson or, or Missy Elliott or, Though a lot of the people that started Millennium were very much part of that same culture. You know, the the generation that was touring with artists, you know, pre-Napster, pre, again, the internet interrupting the dance industry. Um, so this is sort of an interesting new wave. And I think already we've seen the next evolution of it. You know, we're no longer just looking at these videos on YouTube. I think things have definitely shifted two platforms like Instagram, more recently IGTV, and of course, TikTok. And of course, the pandemic has accelerated this as well. So I think it's great that we decided to focus on this very niche uh, type of video, but also something that, especially given some time, we'll see as defining an era of dance and a generation which I'm going to coin the millennial dance complex. Which leads me to my last question to chew on. Talk about the evolution. I guess, like, what do we see for the change of these kinds of videos 
for the years to come. Are we going to see less invasive camera exposure or more of that? Are we going to see maybe more height movement or less? Are we going to see less sexy innuendo dance choreography? What do you hope or what do you possibly see for the future of this style of video dance content? I'm kind of framing this as a post-COVID thing, but I have a feeling that, first of all, the um, the flock formation will probably be spread apart. <laughs> so I think that whatever gimbal movement won't quite be going in and out so much. I have a feeling that that's going to stabilize a bit. But I think a lot of class videos are going to manifest the way that they are manifesting right now, that they're um, combinations that are performed outside of the studio environment. I think we're going to see a lot more dancers, I mean, partially as a result of the pandemic, but also as a result of sort of this newfound agency and not needing to be tied to a certain geographical location, I think we're going to see more class videos manifest as combinations done in open spaces, in, you know, in living rooms, in, you know, non-conventional spaces. And it'll be interesting to see how that, um, how that evolves. And you never know, there could be a new um, social platform that class videos will mold into eventually, but. Definitely. I think that especially the next generation and those that are coming up not knowing what the world without YouTube or without camera phones is like, I think that the choreography is going to get more advanced by way of integrating camera and the dance movement. What we would have previously seen as a concept video or as even a screen dance, I think is going to bleed more into class video. And I think that, as you mentioned, like these social elements or this using social media or technology to get dance outside of the studio is also going to continue to accelerate. So in a way, I think that the way we use video is accelerating at such an incredible pace that's affecting the way we choreograph and our standards. It's almost like any any company is now a media company. <laughs> Even if you didn't think you were in the business of media, uh, if you have... If you have an account on these platforms, you might find that you're spending a lot of time being a media company. And I do think that the next generation is going to really, we, we probably won't recognize dance when we look back 10 years from now. And we'll be able to identify these pivotal movements or these phases, such as these class videos from the 2000s. And my future forecast is that we're going to see more drones being used <laughs> for these kinds of class videos outside the classroom. And I'm going to end it there. And now for some exciting events taking place this week. The LEAD Screen Dance Competition is screening online from now until November 19th. In association with the Academy Award qualifying Leeds International Film Festival, this compelling collection of international dance films explores the many ways a moving body can tell a story. See them now on leedsfilm.com. The In Shadow Lisbon Screen Dance Festival starts this week, November 12th, at the Museo de Marioneta in Lisbon, Portugal. The festival will present a variety of public events in Lisbon from now until December 18th. Details can be found on voarche.com. Pick up 
pick of the week. It's that time of the week where we share one pick for you to watch. Okay. My pick of the week is something that I saw Hannah share. Uh, it's a Vimeo staff pick, so you know it's probably going to be great. It's a short film by Celia Ralston Hall called Taxi. Uh, it features Or Schreiber and uh, what I would say is almost a cameo by Emma Portner and Eco Brown. So, yeah, Claire, Hannah, did you see this? Did you love it as much as I did? I mean, I shared it. I did, and I did. <laughs> I kind of got, like, isolations vibe from this. I'm really liking this emergence of films that are shot on film, but then digitally edited. It's kind of like the best of both worlds. The sound score in this video was by far amazing and how the choreography uh, intersects with it. I, I mean, I was just drawn right away. Yeah. And also just the yellow. It's got it all going on. I got to credit Celia Russenhall too for um, her commitment to her vision. I think I've been vocal saying that I am not always the biggest fan of some of the work she does, but I always, always, always appreciate the commitment that she throws in with her ideas and with the weird twists and turns that this film takes. Everything is, you know, 100% committed, both from her as her, you know, staging the vision as well as Or Schreiber, who is, you know, very quickly becoming a dance film crossover star. Yeah, I think this is a great example of, I mean, Celia does experiment. She does try different things. I mean, even her film Ma, I would say, was probably one of like the first feature length screen dances, uh, particularly lately, like maybe there were attempts before, but... Certainly, it's one that has left quite an impression. And even her short work, I've been a fan since Mariah's Lollipop, like way back in the day. Uh, I think I first saw it in like 2013 or something, uh, or 2014 at Kukuloris. Uh, Shout out Kukuloris Film Festival. But yeah, I think this was such a great example of something that's the right length, just had such a fun feel to it. The choreography is excellent. The performance is awesome. The colors are great. The costuming, just everything is is perfection in the short film. So definitely recommend it to anyone and everyone that is interested in dance or movies or taxis uh, or excellent wardrobe choices. So this is Taxi and the link is in the show notes. And that's our show. Thank you everyone for listening in and, you know, dancing the night away or dancing the day away to this episode. Uh, other than that, follow us on Instagram, FrameformPod. That's Frameform, P-O-D. And email us at FrameformPodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, myself. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, listeners. We will talk to you next week. All right. See you later. Till Wednesday. Bye. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Ray. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>